Now we got it down to where I'm literally putting in about five days a month with my law firm, yet we're still maintaining our, our top and bottom line numbers. Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hi there. Welcome back to the Case Fuel Podcast. This is your host, Jan Roos, and we're interviewing the law firm Top 500. I'm here with Todd Villarubia of Louisiana Wealth Plan, and Todd posted some really impressive growth last year, 43%, and uh, we're going to talk to him today about how he was able to accomplish that. So thanks for being on the show, Todd. Hey, thank you, Jan. I appreciate the invite. All right. So getting started. So we kind of have a high-level view of what you do today, Todd, but would you mind telling us a little bit of the origin story about how you got to where you are today? I'd always been entrepreneurial, and after I got my my law degree. I went and got my master's in law. Went and worked for a, a local New Orleans-based law firm. And after a couple of years, just realized that I just frankly wasn't cut out for that. So I started my own firm. And at first, it was just me. You know, I, I, my first year, I, I'll never forget, I, I grossed $19,000. That was top line revenue. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I was I was dirt poor, didn't know any better. And it was a start. And every year for, I believe, I don't know, good Lord, probably 18 straight years, we had both top line and bottom line growth. So it's definitely been an evolution. There is no easy magic pill. I think anybody that tells you differently is, you know, just lying to you. But I do think that there are ways to take quantum leaps to grow your firm. So that's really interesting, Todd. So as far as kind of the big moves that have happened, can you think about any of the, the big inflection points along your path that led to those quantum leaps? Frankly, there's, there's uh, three things I guess I would point to. The first is hiring my first full-time employee. If you're familiar with uh, the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, the problem, you really don't own a business when you're just a solo. I mean, you really are just self-employed, even if you may have an S-Corp or an LLC. And it's always, I think, a big jump for somebody to hire that first employee because it's a little terrifying, you know? I mean, I, I think, like I said, we wound up doubling our top line revenue for several years. You know, with that first year, like I said, I think we did seventeen or nineteen thousand. Next year we were right under forty, you know, and then the next year we're right under eighty. And I think it was by that third year that I said, you know what? You know, me taking out the garbage and writing up all my own stuff, I mean I need to hire somebody. But it was pretty terrifying because, you know, you start looking at, well if I pay somebody back back then, you know, I've been in this for twenty three years, you know, you can get a decent, you know, employee for, you know, forty grand or so. They could do a little bit of everything. You know, that was a big chunk, you know, but what it comes to realize pretty quickly is that, wow, you know, once I get that person to be doing stuff that I was doing that I don't really need to be doing as a lawyer, I don't need to be answering the phones. I don't need to be handling my books. I don't need to be necessarily even doing drafting. It's a way to then leverage your time, which really started then growing my business pretty rapidly, you know? So that was, I think, the first inflection point. The second inflection point was making the move to not only get, you know, paralegals, but then ultimately to get another tax attorney. And frankly, Frankly, I wouldn't have had the guts to do that. I mean, I've been at one point in private practice for maybe 10 years or so. I was recruited to head up the estate business planning section for the largest firm uh, 
my area. And I, I decided to go because I knew I already had my own book of business. The worst thing that happens is it doesn't work out and I go back out on my own. And I, I guess that's a side note for everybody that's listening. You know, until you know how to rain make, I think you will always be under someone's arm. I always admit people that it is actually more important for you to learn how to generate revenue than even being a great technical lawyer. You know, uh, you can always hire better technicians. And if you don't think there's somebody that's a better technician than you, then I think you're being a little foolish and a little, you know, maybe need to be humbled. You know, I am not best brightest tax attorney in the world, but I think I know how business owners think. And I think that helps me to help them get to a better place. So, you know, for me, that was another big jump when I went to that big law firm was hiring the first LLM that worked for me. And I was like, my goodness, you know, how are we going to do this? You know, if I think at the time we were up to maybe 360,000, just back in maybe 2002 or so, we were doing like high 300s, I think at that point. And I was terrified. This guy was going to cost like 120 grand. And I'm like, how in the hell are we going to afford this? You know? And lo and behold, we wound up, you know, the, the firm says, look, you don't worry about that. What do you think you can fill them up with? I said, I don't know. I guess I can fill up a third of time. That's just a rough guess. Well, within two months, I had him 100% full because what happens is, is as you give that work to a competent person, it then again frees you up to even give better service to your best customers. Go out there, look at your referral sources and, and really treat them well. So that was a second kind of big you know, thing within three years of that, two, three years of that, we jumped from high 300s to like mid 600s of top line revenue. And then really the, the last piece, which really started about five years ago, was when I finally, you know, in, in my stupidity, finally came to realize that, well, you know, the very best at have coaches. There's a lot of CEOs that have coaches. Why in the world would I not have coaches? And I had heard about uh, this guy, Patrick Wilson with Atticus, which is one of the larger practice management groups out there that are devoted to lawyers. And that really became my entrepreneurial launching pad because, you know, he was the one who introduced me to EMeth, which is all about getting writ systems and processes in place. And he helped me understand, you know, time management, time blocks that we implemented in our firm. He helped us understand the 80-20 rule that most people don't know about and how 80% of your revenue will often come 20% of your files. And actually, it's called the Pareto Principle. I mean, I, I really owe a lot of success. You know, it's like they say, you kind of stand on the shoulders of others. And that was really the coaching, I think, was the third piece. And, you know, after I, I felt like I learned a lot from him, I wanted to eventually move into a group called How to Manage a Small Law Firm with R. John Robin. And R. John is just brilliant. And they kind of talk in terms of like seven different working parts of every law firm, but it's also very business. And I've gotten much clearer now on like, you know, what kind of financial reporting I should be doing, how to market better, how to sell, sell better. Now, he was the one who kind of explained very simply to me that all of sales, for example, is really, it's something we do for someone, not to someone. And I think that's a huge mindset shift for a lot of people. They think of sales being a, an awful thing. But the reality is that the clients that come into my office are facing some pretty treacherous issues, you know, facing their own mortality, facing what happens if, if I get the divorce, facing what happens with my disabled child. They're facing, you know, what happens if I become disabled. They've got estate tax issues. They've got what happens if my kids get divorced or lawsuits, all of these major issues. So are we selling, you know, to them or are we selling for them when we're experts in this area? I would submit that we're selling for them. And all we're doing is we're helping them. All sales is about movement. They are currently in a spot that they have pain about, and we're going to help them get to a higher level and, you know, to where they want to be. So all of a sudden, well, I sleep well at night because I know if I die, I've got enough insurance to make sure my wife is protected. I know if I die that my kids aren't going to waste this money at age 
AJ18s, we set up testamentary trusts. I know if I die, you know, I no longer have $10 million estate tax problem that I used to have. So we can address all those to get the clients to where they be so that they stop worrying about all this because ultimately everybody worries about death and disability and divorce and all these things. There's a reason they call it the 3Ds, you know, and we help people do that. And I would submit that everybody on call, regardless of proprietary, has the same thing. And that's a whole nother thing. I don't tell people, you know, people say, what do you do, Todd? Well, I don't say I'm a tax attorney. I don't say, well, I'm a board certified expert in estate planning. I don't say, you know, I was recognized as one of the top 100 attorneys by, by Worth Magazine in the entire country. What I say is we help highly successful business owners protect their life's work from the government, creditors, and tax because they don't give a shit, frankly, about me. They care about them. So, you know, by defining who I help, highly successful business owners, what do I help them with? Protecting their life's work, which is basically everything that they've saved and built. And what am I protecting them from? Some of the biggest threats that are out there, taxes, the government, and lawsuits and creditors, right? So, it, boy, I tell you, when I tell people that, it, you know, some people refer to it as a magic statement, whatever, it immediately resonates with them. And that's, again, I learned that through good coaching. So, the third real, you know, taking off point for me was the coaching that I've gotten through the last five or six years that have just taken us to a whole new level. Yeah, Todd, well, that's a lot of awesome stuff. And we got a lot to dig into there. But uh, yeah, that was actually my next question. And you know, the whole point of differentiating a law practice is something that a lot of people are afraid to do. And you'll see a lot of solos get stuck in sort of the, the general practice mode, because they're afraid to turn away work, especially when they have those, you know, those hungry leaner times what a lot of us face when we're starting out to that magic statement point, it's I couldn't agree more because it's the kind of thing that's going to sound really, really good to the clients that you want to deal with. And it's not going to sound good to the people you don't want to deal with. But at the end of the day, you know, you're saving yourself time and being able to find work for the attorneys that you've trained in the stuff that you guys are really good at. And you're also doing them a favor to your previous point about, you know, getting the wholesales and, and really kind of coming from the service mentality. You know, if you guys have developed this deep expertise in Louisiana tax law and estate law, then, you know, you'd be doing them a disservice if it wasn't uh, for the fact that they would hire you. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a great example there. You know, one of the, you know, I know one of the questions you want to talk with me about is some of the trends I'm seeing and what I'm seeing in estate law. You know, when I first started 23 years ago, so much of this was driven by death taxes, you know, the, the exemption was 600000 and people didn't realize, for example, that, you know, the death benefit of an insurance policy was factored in. So, you know, I could have a, back then a million dollar term policy with no cash value and have an estate tax problem. And a lot of attorneys didn't understand that. A lot of clients didn't understand it. But my point was that if you owned a business and had a house, you probably had an estate tax problem, right? And so there were so many people that were being driven by tax reasons. And even when the exemption went from 600 to a million and then to 2 million, three and a half million, there were still a lot of people. Well, now it's up to $11 million. So what I'm finding is, is you have what I would almost call a commoditization of an estate planning practice. And what people are doing is that they're saying, you know, they've got people advertising newspapers everywhere and on radio. You know, I heard one guy literally on Groupon the other day saying, we'll do a will for $75. Oh, geez. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, and our take on that is, you know what, if price is your number one goal and not quality, then there's, there are many, many many, and I truly mean this, there are many attorneys I will, I, my, me and my team can refer you to who are less qualified and less competent, but who will absolutely do it for cheaper. And if that's all you want, then you know what? We are not the firm for you. And you know, it all gets down to, if you ever, boy, I'd highly encourage those of you that haven't heard of this, go to ted.com, look at Simon's 
Clinic's Why. It's a 15-minute program that literally changed how I communicate. I, I literally have to watch, and that blew up this whole detailed website I had. And instead of talking about, well, we do wills, we do trust, we do family-limited partnerships, we do private foundations, all the what, 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 I started talking about what we believe in. We believe that you should decide where your assets go without the government taking 40%. We believe you should decide, you know, who's going to raise your children if you unfortunately die too young, not some judge that you've never met. We believe that you should protect your kids from, you know, the threats that are out there with divorce and creditors. And boy, I tell you, it's a whole different way of communicating because it gets to the why of we, why we do what we do. And you're right. I mean, at that point, most of my business owner clients, it's like it immediately catches with them. That's why our, our close rate is so high. We track all of this stuff. But I can tell you, we had one client that I'll never forget. They came in. I started talking about how we can eliminate about $10 million of death taxes. And the financial advisor pulls me outside and she says, Todd, you know, just you may want to ease up on this talk about trying to take the government out of the equation with, you know, $10 million. And I'm like, you know, if they, because the clients are liberal, she said, you know, I said, you know what, that's fine. But, you know, I, I don't think I'm the right attorney, <laughs> you know, and they were going to arguably pay us a big fee. But I was like, you know, if we are on the same level here and we're not doing it for the same reasons, I don't know if I'm your guy. You want to go write a big check to the government? Great. That's just not who I am, <laughs> you know, and there's other people, you know, there's other ways you can write checks to the government, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just not your guy. So, yeah, I think when you develop your magic statement, it's really well done. And I think when you, you know, it immediately connects with people. I think when you get real clear what niche you are in, and the best example I can tell you there, Jan, is, you know, in How to Manage a Small Law Firm, there's one of the most successful firms there, a guy by the name of Eric Brohl. And, and Eric, I'll never forget the first time I met with him. I'm like, so you're an estate planner, Eric, you know, how would you build this, you know, million dollar plus law firm or want to learn from course. And he says, well, first of all, I wouldn't really call myself an estate planner. I said, well, I thought you did successions. He says, yes, we do, but I, I don't really do estate planning. I said, wait, you don't do wills? He said, no. I said, you don't do LLCs? No. Nope. I said, so you're telling me like somebody comes in for a succession and you know that they need to do a will. You don't do that. He said, no. And that's a great example of how people get nervous about going niche. But here's a guy that because only did succession, everybody in his city, everybody in the surrounding area, all the attorneys, even estate planning attorneys, they know when you have a succession, he's one of the top guys. So it's almost like a niche within a niche, if you think about it. I'm kind of doing the same thing, frankly, where our firm is really starting to gravitate towards a national presence and really just going after, you know, two main practice areas. One, for those clients that do have estate tax problems. In other words, people that are above the $20 million limit, because we can, through a bunch of, you know, tools that we have, I can make $200 million literally disappear from death taxes forever, multiple generations, right? And then the second practice area we're doing is with asset protection, which as you grow your wealth becomes a major issue. So we feel like both of those are national type issues. So more and more now we're starting to get a national reputation and starting to really focus in on that. And I know it's going to sound weird as an estate planner, but I'm literally looking to, you know, fairly soon get out of doing wills altogether, buy sell agreements, LLCs, and referring that to people because the other people that do wills and stuff a lot, there's a lot of estate plans that wills and live trust that have no idea how to set up a dynasty trust you know, properly or family limited partnership, some of the high-end stuff we do. And they'll arguably refer work to me if I refer you know, some of the base work to them. So it, it winds up working for everybody, I think, when you when you become niche. I mean, think about the whole world. When I'm 51, you know, and, and when I was a kid, there was only three stations on the TV, you know? I'm not even going to get into that, you know, there was no remote back then. But, you know, now we've got a thousand stations on satellite. You know, I, I used to DJ, so I used to haul around all these albums, you know? And if I wanted to switch from one song to another, I had to put a whole nother album on. Now with my phone, I can literally have an entire 
entire DJ set up with two, you know, iPhones, a two iPod, and play the exact beats per minute. I want to lug all those things around. Becoming, it's a long tale, it's a book on this, that deals with how we're becoming hyper-specialized and very niche. And I think the sooner attorneys start grasping that, it's no different. If I had a heart attack, which unfortunately I did a few years ago, oh geez, yeah, I, I wouldn't go to a podiatrist, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to go to the best cardiologist I find in the world, which I, I did in Cleveland Clinic. So it's it, same thing. And I think the sooner lawyers grasp that, I think the better off everybody's going to be. And I think it's important to be a specialist. I really do. It's a, you know, I think the fact, for example, that I have an LLM and tax really makes a big difference. I mean, you know, with these these people, you know, there's a lot of people who are estate planners that don't have a tax specialty that really they're missing out on some benefits, you know, and the clients are missing out is really the sad part. So I, I do think getting hyper niche is a real path to growth, but you have to be willing to cut off, you know, the C and D type cases. And that, that might be because you don't like the person or they're not going to pay you. You got each person has defined what a CND is. For us, for example, we have now twice started to go down the Medicaid route, like a lot of estate planners are with the increased exemption. And quite honestly, we just couldn't do it well. And for the first time in my career, I've faced a practice that area that we just, I've tried twice now. And I just said, you know what? We got to stop doing this. Let's refer all of the Medicaid long-term, you know, nursing home care type work to other highly qualified attorneys. And in turn, that's all they do. They're, when they've got a client that has an estate tax or a word about asset protection, hopefully they'll think of us. It's actually interesting because, I mean, as far as the referrals come in, that's definitely a really good way to build sources. But, you know, the other thing, too, to people might be listening to it, um, you know, that guy that you mentioned, that, that poor sucker who was offering the $75 World Zone Groupon, he probably has to do a half an hour consultation or an hour consultation with everyone that he's doing for that. And when you have, you know, that half an hour, there's only so many hours in the week that you can have. And, you know, when you're sitting down with somebody like that versus somebody who stands to lose 20 million dollars from the death tax, you know, you're obviously going to be getting a better billable for that. So, you know, it's it's super important. And um, I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit on that, Todd. So, you know, we have this issue with commoditization, kind of switching a little bit into the, the tactical stuff, how you're getting these higher net worth individuals into the door. I've always viewed that as being kind of a combination of three different things. And those three things I would submit are experience, expertise, and your systems and people is kind of the third thing. So when I say experience, you know, you know, I've had attorneys that have, you know, worked for me that frankly have never filed a 706, which is like the federal state tax or gift tax return, 709. And, and even though they've been estate planners their whole life, you know, so I think having the experience of over two decades of working with people, it lends a certain comfort level to both the client and the advisor that we're a known quantity. You know, they're, they're unfortunately what I found in particular in estate planning is that there's a lot of litigators that hate litigation and they finally say, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go get a more genteel practice, I'm going to become an estate planner. And I literally had a conversation not even a year ago with a person, I will spare them because, it, excuse my French, I tend to, to curse a lot, but you know, I truly want to strangle her. I mean, she said she was an estate planner. She was a former litigator. I mentioned something about just like a testamentary trust, which, you know, all I can tell the people who don't know what that is, it's kind of like estate planning basic 101, right? And she didn't know what that was. And I was like, how dare you? How dare you call yourself an estate plan when you don't even know the most basic stuff and you're going to advertise to the public that you're an estate planner and you don't even know the basics. You're going to harm someone. It's the same thing with a lot of estate planners, in my opinion, who go around selling the living trust. In certain states, living trust makes sense. In other states, not so much. And there's a wide debate among the estate plan community. And I've always viewed it as, look, I don't, you know, you do whichever you feel in your good conscience is right for the client and your professional opinion. But if you're going to do the damn living trust, then make sure you fund it. And if you got to tell the client that he's got to pay 
you more money so that it's effectuated, go do it. But I can tell you in my 23 years, I've literally seen hundreds and hundreds of these living trusts that aren't funded, sometimes not at all. So all these promises that they made the client are actually a lie. And I believe it should be grounds for malpractice personally. And so it's stuff like that where I really think that the experience comes into play. I think the expertise comes into play. So obviously somebody who's been doing nothing but estate and asset protection and business and tax law their whole career for you know two decades is always going to know more than somebody who just switched over a year ago, right? I mean, they haven't been through the rodeos we have, you know? And then finally, it's your system. So, you know, starting with reading the e-myth and then continuing on with, you know, we, we actually hired a fractional COO at our firm and we started developing literally written processes, policies, procedures, checklists, systems for everything we do at the firm. This is how we answer the phone. We, we developed what we call SKUs, which is like step-by-step instructions, who needs to do what and what our costs are to, to, to produce a given line of business, right? And we literally started putting all of this stuff in writing. Why? Because once you start hiring, we quickly learn that it's wonderful until they walk out. And then when they walk out, all hell breaks loose because all that institutional knowledge leaves. I remember my first full-time employee, when she left, I was like, oh my God, my, you know, how am I going to handle this? Because she knew all my clients. She knew all of my key advisors. She knew advisors were horrible and which ones were good. She knew how to run my books. She knew what all my passwords were. I mean, she leaves. I mean, before we had written systems, that was a nightmare, right? And as other people left, same kind of problem. And it wasn't until we started developing written systems. And now when we hire somebody, we're like, okay, for your position, here's the stuff you need to generally know about the firm. And for your position, here's the stuff you need to know for your position. And we have literally, we have videos, we have written systems. I mean, we have a 900 page ops manual so that, you know, the whole idea is the systems run our business and our people run our systems. And that really, like I said, was kind of with the coaching that we got kind of the third quantum leap that we took as a firm. Yeah, that's awesome stuff, Todd. So, I mean, this is something that a lot of people, I'm, I'm sure this sounds like, you know, the, the heaven such scenario for a lot of people having the actual numbers that are running in their system and being able to track that stuff. I would bet if you pulled a hundred law firms, you, you might find one or two that actually know what their profit margin and on given services. And, you know, that obviously oh informs God. what you guys want to do moving forward. I mean, you, you'd spoken about working in the Medicaid division. I'm sure some part of the decision not to move forward with that was based on the numbers that ended up coming from that. You're obviously moving up to higher and higher levels of of managing this stuff as you build your team to take care of kind of the lower level stuff. Now, as far as what you're concerned with, like what are the key metrics that you look at when you're determining whether the firm's moving in the right direction or not? We start developing key performance indicators. And the idea was uh, it was based on some stuff I learned through Entrepreneurs Organization and a guy by the name of Vern Harnish, who wrote a wonderful book, Secrets of the Rock- Rockefeller Habits. That's all about strategic planning, which we do. And I learned a lot about KPIs, you know, from him and then subsequently read other books and so forth. And one of the things we started doing was literally trying to track, you know, two KPIs per, I guess the best way to put this would be two KPIs per section of my firm. So what I mean by that, two KPIs for marketing, two KPIs for sales, two KPIs for our production or factory, two KPIs for finance, two KPIs for the CEO, me, my mind's at, you know, two KPIs for our physical plant. And literally the whole idea is we then assign people on my team to each one of those divisions, if you will. And then we had a very clear picture of what we were looking at. So as a simple example on marketing, we knew that for many years, we averaged about 12 new files per month of at least initial conference, I guess I should say. So we knew that that was one of the marketing metrics that we had to track. How many initial 
conferences do we have per month? And then secondly, again, going back to that Pareto principle that 80% of the benefit comes from 20% of the effort. That was, again, Patrick Wilson from Atticus taught me that. And I literally, I went back and looked at our file and I said, you know, let's look at the top 20 files as far as revenue generation. Sure enough, 20% of my files generated a little bit over 80% of my revenue. So what we started saying is that we call them 10K plus files, you know, that when we even got clear on which types of our files generated at least $10,000 of fees. And on average of those 12, we had three, you know, initial conferences whereby it was a potential $10,000 plus file on average per month. So from a marketing standpoint, those were our two KPIs. And the whole idea was, okay, what do we need to do to meet both of those? Well, sometimes we need to follow up because somebody cancels. Sometimes it means, you know, that really need to push these guys that are potentially larger cases because you have to anguish, you know, when trying to sell, is it, are we going to spend a hundred hours trying to get somebody in for a, a nominal will? You know, maybe not, but will we spend a bunch of time trying to get somebody back in on a, an $80,000 succession, you know, that's very complicated, maybe litigate it? Yeah, I mean, we should. So we start developing the KPIs and then developing some simple dashboards, frankly, where I can run the practice based on those metrics and assigning people to each of those so I knew who was in charge of what. And between that and the rent systems, believe it or not, I'm down to, I'm actually only meeting with clients like three days a month now. And I've got two other businesses I'm involved with. One that is working with the same exact clients, but instead of doing law, we're doing pretty much everything else for them. So again, highly successful business owners, it's called Fountainhead Global. And with Fountainhead Global, we're doing not law, but pretty much everything else where we're helping them with tax mitigation and family governance, mission, vision, values, and pro-APA planning and all this other stuff. This the ability to run my law firm on systems so that I don't have to be working. I literally went from when I was, you know, a few years ago, working 60 hours a week to once those systems started getting developing, you know, I no longer was working until midnight every Wednesday and on the weekends. And I eventually went, so I was taking every Friday off. Last year, for the first time, I started taking one week off from the law firm every single month and a second week once per quarter per month. So in other words, one out of every three months, I was taking off two weeks. And on the other months, I was taking off one week. Now we got it down to where I'm literally putting in about five days a month with my law firm, yet we're still maintaining our, our top and bottom line numbers because we're, we're so systematized now that the law firm is not as dependent upon me. And I would submit to y'all, it's not just about my time. It's about that I was putting my, and all of you who are listening, you're putting your client at risk by you not having a system. Because if you go down disability death, I mean, my own father had a stroke was a, was a parapole, that's our quadriplegic at 47. If you go down, all your clients are going to suffer if they're so dependent upon you, your poor employees who are depending upon you for their salaries so that they can send their kids to better schools and so that they can afford better homes, you're literally screwing them all. You are literally screwing them all by not having risks. You're literally screwing them all by not pricing correctly because when you price correctly, you can build in extra profit, which you can then reinvest into learning and growing your systems <laughs> and into learning, become a better technician and a better entrepreneur and a better manager, all those things, right? And when you undercut race at the bottom, we, we've seen what happens with that in China, right? I mean, everybody knows, unfortunately, that, you know, if it's made in China nowadays, it's probably going to be kind of crap. Well, why is that? It's because they're trying to do everything on the cheap, right? So why is it any different with a law firm? So I, I would just submit that there's a whole different way to look at this. And look, we lose some business because people say, oh, Villaruby, oh, it's too expensive. And I always say, well, relative to what? If I charge you 50 grand more than the next guy, but I save 200 grand on something he had no idea about because not it doesn't have 
have my experience or expertise, which one is better for the client? Absolutely. This is something that's really tough, especially when people are starting out. The the transition to getting to the point where you have the confidence to do that is obviously something that takes time. But no, I couldn't agree more. And it's like, you know, going back to that that poor guy who does all the stuff on Groupon, it's really going to be tough for him to ever scale a business and get himself out of it because he's never going to have the margin to hire people. And that's, you know, kind of the, the engine for a lot of this growth. Speaking about that a little bit, I knew you were running a tight ship, Todd, but I didn't realize it was tight to the point that you're only spending a handful of uh, days of the month working on the actual law firm, which is fantastic. And if anyone finds this something appealing, I would definitely recommend re-listening to this episode to see how Todd was uh, speaking about how to get there. But um, obviously, something that has to happen when you can take that kind of step back from the firm is hiring good people. So I kind of wanted to ask you, obviously, the systems are a very important part, but can I ask you about sort of your philosophies around hiring and how you've gotten such good people around you to help you run this firm? Being an entrepreneur's organization, and I was also in Vistage for a while, and just the nature of my practice, right? I mean, I'm primarily, again, working with highly successful business owners. You start to learn a couple of things. And as I regularly point out people, there's two things I know about just about every business owner, whether you're a small law lawyer, you know, small firm lawyer, or whether you're a CEO of a $50 million widget company. There's two things I find pretty rarely. Number one is that the single biggest source of pain for the owner is almost always HR. And I'm clear about why that. And number two is that the biggest thing holding every single person back that's a business owner is that in the world of knowledge, there's a small piece of stuff that we know that we know. And there's certainly a small piece of stuff that we know that we don't know. But the much bigger piece of the pie of of knowledge is all about stuff that we don't even know that we don't know. So, you know, before I... Before I didn't, I didn't know about Vern Harnish and Secrets of the Rockefeller Habits. I didn't know about Michael Gerber. I didn't even know about that. So I wasn't even aware that I wasn't aware that it wasn't, you know, that this stuff existed. And then all of a sudden you learn it and you're like, wow, how can I now apply it? How can I execute on it? And we started developing things to then not only learn, but to grow and execute on it, right? So for me, it's both is, you know, with that eight, you don't have a business until you have employees. And unfortunately, many of us, it's a huge pain point. And the reason is, frankly, is that if you think about HR, it's nothing but headaches of the owner, right? I mean, by and large, you know, I mean, I'm talking, I can remember I spent months with one of my employees, my right hand at the time, trying to figure out what an exempt employee was and what a non-exempt employee was under the employment laws, right? And it was frankly just very aggravating is a nice way to put it because we spent all this time trying to figure out what the rules were, what we could and couldn't do. And guess what? We ain't making any money. We're not helping anybody, right? All we're doing is we're trying to comply with them government's regulations, and I get why they're there, but, you know, HR problems, whether it's because somebody's out sick, and we're dealing with this today, where a good part of my team, including myself, isn't in Friday, so I had to, you know, figure out a way to get, you know, somebody to answer the phones, because so many people are out on vacation and everything, so I would recommend that there's a bunch of resources out there, so, you know, there's John Maxwell's five levels of leadership, you know. I do believe that building an A team is incredibly important to your success. Apple does to become Apple without really brilliant people. It's not just jobs and laws, right? And I've been blessed that, quite frankly, we've gotten better and better on how to hire, how to filter out the bad mail, you know, bad resumes. So, for example, you know, one of the things that I learned from Arjun at, at How to Manage was, you know, stop running ads that say, oh, please, please, won't you come work for me? We're so great. You know, you're going to love working with us. Instead, it's just the opposite. We're like, if you are going to show up late for work, do not apply for this job. If you're going to sit around, gossip, 
gossiping about, you know, wasting half the day instead of helping our clients, you know, complaining about your spouse, don't take this, don't apply for this job. If you aren't going to be good with details, please don't apply for this job because we need people that are good with this. And it's all the stuff about what we don't want. And it's this ridiculously long ad. And we then ask them to do two simple things. Number one, make sure that you attach your resume in a PDF format that has been cleaned of all of the metadata. And number two is please in your email response, you know, I'm a big Iron Rand fan, so I'll use one of the Iron Rand characters, you know, put Howard Roar in the subject line. And I then tell my staff, we create a special, you know, email info at whatever. And I tell my staff person who reviews the resumes, if they don't have Howard Roar in the email, I don't care how the hell, how experienced they are, how wonderful they are, whatever. If they can't follow that one instruction, do not even look at it. Immediately put it in trash. And that literally, believe it or not, wipes out about 75% of the response. Now, we've had some people say, you know, they've cursed us out for doing that. Why are you doing this? Who do you think you are? I'm like, well, I'm somebody that cares about my clients and I'm somebody that's going to pay you higher than scale. And maybe the reason you don't have a job right now is because you think this is ridiculous. That's a great filter for the attention to detail. Because I mean, God forbid, uh, you know, if they're not going to do this on something that's contingent on them getting a job, you know, who would say what's going to happen on some random Tuesday, six months into hiring them when they miss a detail on something that could be really consequential when somebody ends up passing away. Amen, brother. Yeah, man. That's really awesome. And like, look, I'll say this, Todd. I mean, I got some books from that that I'll absolutely be checking out myself. I mean, this has been a really, really good um, source of you know, stuff for, for management for any company, to be frank. You know, we've got some awesome growth that's happened to this. Um, you've obviously carved out quite an awesome lifestyle for yourself. What's next for Louisiana Wealth Plan? Wealthline Law Group is the name of the firm. LA Wealthline is the website. But again, what I'm envisioning, in fact, we're getting ready to host uh, the first event. I haven't even figured out how to market it yet. But what we're going to do is we're going to bring some of the nation's top experts in to specifically talk about strategies that really make sense for the high net worth community that don't really make a lot of sense for the middle or even upper middle class. So we got Bob Keebler coming in. We haven't, you know, we've got to secure all this, but we've, already, we've been in discussions. He's agreed to come. He's one of the nation's top, you know, CPAs, and he's going to be talking about all the beautiful things we can do under Trump's new tax law. You know, I've got Doug Lodmel coming in who's one of the nation's, you know, experts on asset protection planning. I'm going to be speaking on, you know, family limited partnerships and why dynasty trust makes so much sense. And the whole idea is, frankly, between that event and then I'm going to start speaking to EO groups, hopefully around the country and eventually around the world about how the needs of people, so a lot of people don't realize, believe it or not, not, only 4% of businesses in all of the world do a million or more of revenue. And people don't realize how elite they are when they reach that level. And in EO, you have to be a member, you have to own your business and you have to do at least a million. So there are needs that are unique for somebody. There are things we do for people that are, you know, in the high income or high net worth area that really it wouldn't make sense for somebody making a hundred grand to do. And look, I'm not trying to disparage the people that are, that are frankly, if you're making a hundred grand, you're way above middle class. I mean, the average household in America only make 50 grand, believe it or not. And I, that's who I come from, by the way. Not even that. I mean, you know, my, my dad dropped out of high school. My mom just did high school. I think I was the first person to go to college, much less law school. So it's not because I'm an elitist. It's just that, you know, I believe that business owners are the fountainhead of human progress. That's why I love Ayn Rand so much. I mean, you know, we now with the iPhone have more, you know, knowledge and power than a king had 20 years ago. I mean, really think about that. It is democratized knowledge and information. And it's all because of, of the employees. 
That is who Apple is, employees. And it's also because of the bravery and the, the risk that Jobs and Waz took, you know, with this brilliant idea that they had, right? So I'm, I honor them. And business owners in my book are heroes. And the whole idea is that I can only spend so much time helping people. I'd love to help all the people who have Medicaid problems. They really do. I'm awful. My own aunt got stuck in it and she spent over a million dollars on her long-term care. And I think it's awful, you know, that, that somebody, I, I think as a country, we should take care of those who can't help themselves. But because my time is finite, I choose to work with kind of the highly, highly successful business owners. And that's where I'm looking to do is really kind of start expanding it nationally because the clients that need my help with Wealth Playing Law Group, frankly, also need Fountainhead Global, you know, my, my other company to do all the other non-legal, non-law related stuff. So that's where I'm looking to do is really, you know, if anybody's listening, of course, as a fellow lawyer, we can split fees and stuff like that. But if y'all have anything, obviously, we're always interested, you know, for the, for the high net worth clients, I'll fly anywhere. I love to travel anyway. So that's kind of what I'm looking to do. I, I love to travel. So if I can combine speaking with, you know, meeting with high net worth clients that are business owners to, for both of my companies, then that's kind of where we're looking to go. Yeah. And that actually gives us a great segue into the next question, Todd, which is what's the best place to find you online? Either www.lawellplan. Uh, it's not law. Well planned. Some people get confused. LA for Louisiana well planned. You know, we had this idea for a while that we were literally much like Edward Jones going to build out an, a high-end estate planning practice throughout the country. That was our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal. And then, you know, Fountainhead came along. It's such a bigger opportunity that I had to kind of put that first dream kind of on the side, you know, and kind of go build out Fountainhead. So that's one way on the legal side on, you know, it's kind of like a, what's called a family office, but very different on the Fountainhead side. It's just FountainheadGlobal.com. Once again, there we can, we've got referral fees that we can pay even non-attorneys on Fountainhead side because we're not doing legal work. It's all about helping people grow and maximize their business, family, and personal lives with Fountainhead. So we've got VIP healthcare and family governance and growth strategies for the business, HR solutions for all those problems. And it's something that's a higher calling even than my own law firm. So please feel free, you know, reach out to me. My direct email address is Todd at their LA Wealth Plan or Todd at FountainheadGlobal.com. Feel free. I've gotten real clear. The more people I help, better my life becomes. So I'm sincerely saying this. If I can help anybody that's listening to this, don't hesitate to reach out to me. It might take a little time for me to get back with you, but I've gotten real clear. The more people I help and the more deeply I help them, the better my life becomes. So I'm committed to help and serve other people. Well, thank you so much for that, Todd. That's um, like super generous of you to offer. And anyone who's you know listening to this podcast, for one, I mean, thank you so much for all the detail that you've given and, and scaling this practice and really getting to what most people would consider a dream outcome as far as where this is going to go when somebody ends up striking out to form their own law firm. And again, I would definitely encourage anyone who has heard what kind of stuff Todd's been up to and, and wants that for their own life to definitely re-listen to that. Check out some of those books that he's mentioned. I think this has been a super valuable podcast. So um, yeah, thanks again, Todd. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate the opportunity. So this is another episode of the Case School Podcast, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.